Welcome to the Level Design Podcast. In this episode, we talk about ogres, open source, and Unreal Engines with the outstanding Steve Streeting. Let's get on with the show. Welcome one and all. Hello, thank you. Hi hey guys. Hello, welcome. Hello. It's an interesting time to be recording podcasts. You can usually find people at home and this time we've managed to find, wandering a small island of Guernsey, the multi-talented and many-skilled Steve Streeting. Welcome to the show, Steve. Yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, I'm not sure I can live up to that intro, but I'll do my best. <laughs> it's okay. You can lie on your CV all you want and like no one's going to check up. We've actually talked before on another podcast, and I'm not pimping my other podcast, with a different hat of web development because you've had a long and varied career. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's not stress the long too much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, this current hat is is game development, and uh, I've tried to do that on and off for a very long time indeed. And it's really only now, recently, that I've been doing it full time and and actually giving it a proper go. I, I ended up segueing many, many times into various different areas of tech, including writing my own 3D engine, because uh, as we've alluded to, I'm I'm rather old. And uh, back in the day, nobody gave you 3D engines to play with. You had to make them yourself. So uh, I I ended up doing that, as many people did, and and got distracted by that for quite a long time. As you know, obviously, I I used to run the open source project called uh, Ogre. That was started about 20 years ago now. Um, Is it still still going? going? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, strangely enough, they they did... uh, two releases in the same week <laughs> which was a case of they they kind of stabilized one of the releases and then it came out with another one which is which they've been working on in parallel just in sort of different technology streams so yeah i mean the community is is great they, they've continued with it um 10 years since my retirement so yeah good on them i love projects that have a life of their own i worked on a project that i kind of helped out on like open source is generally like you know you help out on a project and before you know it, you know more about it than other people that are that are helping out and they ask you to run it. And I, I worked on, on a plugin for Eclipse and that has carried on. The people are still using it and somebody else is maintaining it now. I mean, that's the beauty of open source, right? It's like if the company goes... Well, that's the thing. I mean, as, as you as you know, I, I grew up in a very small island uh, with no internet and always assumed that I knew nothing. And I, I was just grasping at straws most of the time, trying to find out how to make things. And I did that for a long time and eventually did it again with, with Ogre. That wasn't my first engine by a long, a long shot. And just put it out there, just mostly actually the reason I put it out there to begin with was um, I was trying to find somewhere to back it up in a reasonable fashion. And I'd only only recently learned about open source and figured, oh, hey, I'm swapping code with people anyway. I used to do it through FTP sites, you know, the various quite active FTP sites in places like uh, Sweden and, and Finland, they had some quite famous, right. you know, if I, if I listed things, something called uh, sunet.se and uh, yeah. xulu.fi, people would know those from, from back in the day as places people used to exchange code. So um, having someone kind of organizing my version control and backing it all up for me and also allowing me to interact with other people who, who felt the same way about the code that I was writing was, was ideal. And I just kind of fell into open source by accident. We should point out that you are on a the island that you referred to because this was was off the show of of uh, recording was that you're actually based in guernsey which is a for the non-britishers around there it's a small island of the south of the isles of england and great britain just 
more closer to France. Yeah, we're about 30 miles off France, so we're closer to, to, to there than we are to the UK, yeah. Um, yeah, I was born here, and uh, like I said, I grew up pre-internet, um, kind of assumed that no one would ever pay me to do anything related with computers. You know, this was a thing where I, I would hear of people who, obviously, I, I played games, so I knew that people made games, but I was under the impression that to do that, you had to have some special training or, you know, go to a particular university or something. I had no idea how any of this stuff works. Nobody, nobody in my family had really ever been to university. Um, and it was the kind of thing that, yeah, I just assumed other people did that. And I, I would try, I would, you know, try and get as much information as I could from, um, you know, the BBC ran their own sort of computer educational program over the time that I was growing up. Um, so that was one source. Well, they had the BBC micro, yeah, right? Yeah. So that, that was literally by the BBC. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, that was one sort of element of my education, but there was no curriculum for it. You know, there were, there were no courses you could take, um, particularly that I was aware of anyway. You just learned in your lunch times, uh, what watching TV programs and getting uh, magazines which would give you games that you could type in in basic that almost 100% of the time didn't work. So yeah. I, I always sort of, I always thought that was an intentional thing um, so that it would teach you how to fix it. Troubleshooting. <laughs> yeah. I can totally relate to that. I, I was born in Cyprus, uh, obviously. I'm a lot younger, but still in Cyprus, uh, there was no game development community and nothing, uh, no master's degree or like bachelor's degree to about game development. So accidentally actually uh when i was about 22 i think uh, a development degree did appear and i'm like yes i'm going to do that straight away <laughs> so straight up after my bachelor's degree i did that so i can definitely relate to your story yeah i think in a way it's, it's sort of an advantage in some ways i mean obviously a disadvantage is you're not really bumping into people who do all this stuff I, you know i talked to other people who, who grew up in say places around guildford and other places like that where they just would bump into people who did this stuff and it just they, they became aware from quite a young age that this was a thing that you could do and so in a way it was a disadvantage but in other ways it was kind of an advantage because I always assumed that I knew nothing and I was always grasping for as much information as I could possibly find from anywhere you know we, we would swap um, listings you know photo photocopies of photocopies of photocopies uh, of listings of books that someone had found at some point we're not sure who originally had the book but someone had it um, and, and we'd try and and often you had bits missing so you'd just be trying to piece together this this sort of assembly definition of a Z80 machine and you were trying to figure out how to make it work and most of the time failing and in, in a way, it was kind of a useful education because when I now come across things that are daunting and a bit scrappy and I don't really have any good information about it, I'm I'm used to that. It's not something that I, I expect to be taught. You know, I, I kind of have to figure it out as I go along. So, yeah, it swings and roundabouts. I mean, you, you kind of jump from one open source like Ogre 3D, which is a hell of a thing to do. And then you invent version control. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> that's maybe yeah. something a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You started working on the tool that I both love and hate, which is SourceTree. Uh, I did, yeah. At Atlassian, which is that's one of the biggest companies. I say biggest companies. It's like I've everyone knows Jira, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everyone loves yeah. or hates Jira. I mean, <laughs> yeah, whether you love or hate it with a passion, you but but you have to use it, it right? Some point. I mean, I'll yeah. be honest. Um, I always preferred Trello, uh, so I was really glad when they bought Trello. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I felt guilty all the time. I was like, I really, I really like using Trello. Um, I mean, I had to use Jira all the time, obviously, and Jira is fine for for a certain size of a company and a certain level of complexity. It's it's exactly the kind of tool you need but for me personally um i like lightweight things most of the time so trello was great so when they when they bought that that was that was right down my alley i could finally not feel guilty about liking trello more but yeah it, it, the Alaskan thing was just a complete fluke i mean i started source tree 
because um, I was working on Ogre and we were switching from subversion uh, to distributed version control and I, I'd had to look at Mercurial and Git and at the time Mercurial and Git uh, were both sort of neck and neck when it came to adoption it wasn't you know a, mm. a, a grand slide a grand slam for, for Git at all at that point um, in fact when we did a community poll about which one we should use it was pretty much split down the middle as to who preferred which one and in the in the end actually initially Ogre ran on, on Mercurial rather than Git because Mercurial was a little bit more friendly to Windows at the time and most of the game developers were on Windows so it just kind of worked a little bit better so yeah I, after all this experience of, of trying to make these things work and uh, I, I was also maintaining the Mac version of Ogre at the time just because no one else was doing it so I bought a Mac and then figured out how to make it work and I was just annoyed by the tools that were there and I wasn't happy with the stuff that was going on so um, I thought well I'm doing a lot of contract work because the way I was making my living was doing contract work um, for people who used Ogre uh, in games but also a lot of the time not in games that was fine but uh, you know the financial crisis had just, ha- just happened there were a lot of lot of work was sort of falling off I was getting a few gaps in my schedule and I thought well it would be a good idea to try and use this time to do something else and maybe I'll do a little side gig uh, now that I've spent all this time learning how to use Git and Mercurial, I'm, and I'm not very happy with the, the tools that were available, um, particularly for Mac, I thought I'd just make one. Um, and it was supposed to just be a side thing. You know, I, I never imagined that it would make more than like a quarter of the money that I needed to, to run the business. And it would just be a little side thing ticking over, filling in the gaps. And then it just kind of blew up accidentally. And then Atlassian came along and I I, I didn't really necessarily want to sell it but at the time. But um, it occurred to me that of all the people who might want to want to buy it, Atlassian were quite a nice company in terms of like, the the people there. It was quite small at the time; it was only about four hundred people at the time. This one were based in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. So I went over to Sydney. Uh, they still are, I think. Yeah, the, the head office is still in Sydney. Yeah, but they're obviously uh, there's a lot of people around the world now. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of people. There. Yeah. So when I when I joined, it was uh, literally four hundred people in Sydney. I think there was only about eighty people in in San Francisco at the time, something like that, maybe even less. I can't remember. But you know, the, the CEO had a or the, the two CEOs had had very compatible sort of ideologies to me. Very down to earth. They still wrote code. They still knew exactly why they wanted this product. It wasn't just a, a business thing. It was because they actually used it, which was which was nice. So yeah, I just kind of ended up following that for a while, even though uh, I still wanted to get into game development. And I'd been trying for a decade, uh, by, but ended up accidentally just making an engine instead and doing that most of the time. And then I accidentally went into source control. From making a 3D engine to source yeah, control. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> but, but weirdly enough, you, you've you brought it back a little bit, but what at the time was by, by creating also Git LFS. Yeah. Or a version, right? Because one of the problems that I've had has been like, well, okay, so now you're making games, right? All of the assets are big binary damn files. And like, Git does not handle that well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I didn't make GitLFS, but I certainly joined the the project. I made something else, which was like very much like GitLFS. Um, but actually, at the same time as as GitLFS was being made, that's the bizarre thing. I mean, it was getting to the point where I was we built up the team for Source Tree, and I was like, I, I kind of want a new challenge. I want to do something else. Um, so we battled around a few ideas, and I'd obviously realized this problem with with um, with Git and large files, and the fact that game developers were having problems with it. And obviously, that's close to my heart. I thought, well, maybe I'll try and solve that. So I spent a few months um, building a prototype, uh, which I called Git Large Objects. <laughs> yeah, I started working on that, and we it turned out quite well. And I, I chose to use uh, a language called Go uh, to make it because I like learning new things, and it seemed like a good way to make a command line tool in a sort of modern way. Um, so I started working on that, and uh, the funny thing was uh, we went to a 
uh, a Git convention, um, sort of the, the main Git convention, uh, in sort of May 2015, I think it was, and uh, we were going to present our Git large objects to to this Git conference, um, and our talk slot was literally the one after um, GitHub were doing a slot, and both of us had come up with this quite vague title around sort of managing. I'm not even sure we managed. We, we mentioned managing large files. I think we just said something woolly around managing interesting objects or something like that. I can't remember. Um, but both of us had fairly vague talk titles and we were going to reveal it. Um, and it turns out that what GitHub were going to talk about was GitLFS. Um, and obviously we were going to talk about Git large objects literally half an hour later on the same stage. And we only found this, we only found this out in the bar the night before. <laughs> when people from Atlassian were talking to people from GitHub, I actually wasn't there because I had a family thing which I couldn't I couldn't cancel. So actually, it was one of our developer relations people, and we talked about the presentation and worked on it together and stuff. So he was there, um, and he found out in the bar that this was going to happen. And of course, uh, that was in San Francisco time, so there were messages in in, in the Slack, you know, at two in the morning, <laughs> saying, "Oh no, what are we going to do? They're, suddenly they're going to announce the same thing that we're going to announce." Um, and you know, we pr pretty much agreed within that small time window that the best thing to do was to merge the two projects um, and for me to work, you know, all the stuff that I'd worked on. And GitLFS did certain things better, so they already had integration with GitHub, which I hadn't started on the server side yet. I'd done uh, more the sort of infrastructure on, on the client end. So I took all the stuff that I'd done on the client end and some of the infrastructure they didn't have yet and put that into GitLFS. Um, and we just basically merged the projects uh, and announced that we were going to do that sort of on the fly in, in that meeting, in that uh, presentation. So... That was interesting. Wow. That's crazy ride. That's amazing. <laughs> and the bizarre thing was we both chose the same thing. We, we both chose to work on uh, the Go language. Um, we both designed it very similar to some other concepts that have come out before, but um, just, just a bit better architecture and a bit better, a bit more practical to use in the scenarios that we envisaged. And yeah, there, there were so many commonalities between the two ways that we've done it. And we, neither of us had talked about it publicly at all. Uh, so neither of us knew uh, the other one was working on it. So it was just a huge coincidence that that happened. But I suppose a good one in the end because we ended up just teaming up and, and making it better for the uh, for everyone who used it in the end. There's quite a few uh, source control systems that seem to have sort of fallen by the wayside, really. Uh, I don't know if anyone ever else ever used Alien Brain. I don't hear anything oh, about yeah. Alien Brain now. <laughs> right. But it was, everyone was all about Alien Brain back in the like the 2000s. And it was just like what everyone was going to use. And then suddenly it just sort of <laughs> disappeared somewhere. And everyone just started using... They're still Perfums. going. I'm actually following some of the, the Alien oh, Brain really? people. Wow. Yeah. But Perfos, yeah, has come in. I, I absolutely hate it. I'll go <laughs> I really like it. I don't know why. I think I just <laughs> used it so long that I kind of understand how it works. It's almost like a religion, I think. I've read all the scripture, so I know the I know the rituals to get what I need to achieve. Well, the exactly incantations yeah. to to, to <laughs> check check something in. Yeah, I mean, my problem is just just that the documentation is terrible. It's like when you ask what this concept is, they they refer to the concept itself as in part of the documentation. You know, it's like it's saying like what is clone? Oh, yeah. You know, I know what clone is. Or in, clobber in, in, in Git. Right? Clobber is great. But if you go like, what is clone? Oh yeah, clobber. <laughs> exactly. What is clobber? Oh, it clobbers a file. Well, yeah. But what is clobber? What what, what implications does that have? Yes. Yeah. Is, will that murder someone? Will someone die because I do this? You know, like you can't refer. You know, it's like these are. This is the reason I like. I hate PHP. Terminology. Web developer here, right? Well, no. The, your PHP is a the PHP hypertext processor. That's what PHP stands for. It's like, no, mate. You don't do recursion in your own damn 
Well, GNU started it, didn't it? Jeez. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it, when you see all these different, I've used a lot of version control systems, and all of them are, they're always designed to fit a particular problem, right? No one just made it awkward for the sake of it. They they genuinely thought this was the best way to do something, and it always comes out of whatever the thinking was behind it. And you know, you, you can pretty much hate any of them if you're using them in the context that they weren't originally designed for. And I've I've probably hated most of them at some point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, at least you you hate them. You know, equal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I think for me, it's a you just grow, you get used to them. They, the you're right. The solution differs per project, and like I've tried, I've tried Perforce. Uh, I've tried a lot of the uh, like SVN solutions and stuff as well. Um, and just going down that route, you get comfortable with it if you work on a project long enough to feel safe to commit, do this, do that. The documentation side of things has always been a massive taboo. I feel it's more you just learn from tribal knowledge on the project of what to do and what not to do. And you form your own work process. We had, we had a wonderful, yeah. an incredible meeting uh, at a pre- one of my previous companies where the lead programmer, who was a very earnest, very precise and very logical person, they, they decided to start using Perforce Streams. And uh, so we were all kind of corralled into a meeting where, where Perforce Streams was described to us over the course of several hours <laughs> and at the end of the meeting he just turned around and looked at us and said do you understand and everyone just shook their heads and i was like no, i don't know at all <laughs> just tell me the incantation version control is always a hard topic because as, as steve says it's like depending on the problem that you're trying to solve like um we're trying to do a, a whole bunch of git lfs stuff at the moment and trying to explain it, it just saves it to Dropbox. Just don't worry about it. All right, it's just that's what it does. It it isn't, but that's the best way that I can. I mean, funnily enough, I, I wrote a I wrote a plugin which actually can save it to Dropbox if you, if you want to. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> for, for, for my own use. Uh, I've been using GitLFS in all the projects I've, I've worked on in the last few years, and uh, I, I wrote. I, I didn't want to have a. I I, I like simplicity. In almost almost all things, I hate things that are too complicated. Um, so what I what I wanted was my my simple Git setup where I just have a literally an SSH connection to a server, um, and the Git repository is just in there. It's just a file system. I don't have to care about running any services. I don't have to care about any HTTP endpoints or anything like that. It's all just very very basic. Um, and unfortunately, GitLFS in its original design requires a lot of HTTP service endpoints to to work. Right now. You can get around that because we wrote um, basically a custom sort of transport plugin system where you can provide your own little executables, um, which will do the transfer right. instead of using a HTTP kind of endpoint. Um, so I did that and just basically made it delegate to any file system you like. Uh, so, you know, it'll basically just serialize all of your large files to anywhere. So it could be your Dropbox drive. It could be, uh, you know, a shared drive on your server. It could be anything at all. Um, and I use that Ooh. for my own personal setup um, just because it's nice and simple. It's It's got obviously some downsides to it, and particularly in terms of of um, nobody being able to noodle around inside that folder afterwards. Obviously, anyone could, because it's a shared folder, anyone could start messing around in it. So it's not necessarily yeah, the yeah. most secure of systems. But for my use, it's it's nice and simple and the moving parts are kept to a minimum. So I quite like that setup. When I was doing the indie, well, indie well, developer fang, I, uh, I definitely missed the ability to just... Um... <laughs> raise a support ticket to fix something on Perforce. <laughs> the way I used to um, back up my whole Perforce depot to Amazon was by running these SSH commands that I'd written down in a notepad document. And uh, at one point, uh, I did them in the, I did them in slightly the wrong order and ended up uh, deleting my Perforce depot, but very, very slowly. 
And I was sitting there wondering why this <laughs> command was taking such a long time to complete. And then I realized it was going through my entire depot, just deleting things gradually and quit it. And oh, yes. managed. Oh, it was so horrendous. It was like, yeah, I only meant to go in there for five minutes. Uh, and that was the next two days of my life was just fixing the horrible problem I created. So, yeah, don't, don't, don't give SSH oh, my to God. designers. <laughs> I, I find it kind of interesting that you've done kind of started out doing Ogre 3D, going version control, getting, get LFS for games and then like what a couple of years ago nearly two years ago nearly three years ago you started all doorways limited yeah a game design company yeah basically and it's a, a small indie company i mean basically the reason was um i am not getting any younger <laughs> <laughs> and and i've been trying to do this for, for some time you know it was uh, we, we talked about ogre but ogre started in 2000 now if you imagine um i've been trying to get into games since about 1985 um and failed <laughs> quite quite uh, repeatedly and only managed to do it sort of in, in small fits and starts um, because of various issues and and getting distracted in various other directions, you know, as, as I have done. So I, I looked, you know, it was 2017 and I thought, well, if I don't do it now, when exactly am I going to do it? <laughs> so we, we, I mean, I've talked about it with, with my wife, Mary, for a long time. Um, we've always been talking about game design ideas, you know, we're, especially when we're on holiday. It's a thing that we used to do on holiday a lot. Whenever we're sort of walking somewhere, we, we do a lot of walking. So if we go out, you know, walking in the Lake District or something, we'd be halfway along, you know, a couple of miles along a track or something. And then we'd start thinking, that game idea that we had, you know, three years ago. What about this twist on it? And it's like we talk about that, and every time we'd come home and we'd never get around to it because she'd be working, I'd be distracted with ogre or sorcery or whatever. Um, and it would it would never happen. We'd have these notebooks full of ideas and full of full of uh, half-finished concepts and, and we'd never get around to it. And obviously I'd do little snippets here and there, but I've always found, I mean, particularly since about 10 years ago, I, I had a bit of a back injury because I was working too many hours and I, I stopped being able to do as many side gigs as I used to do. I used to spend a lot of time doing, you know, hobby projects and things like that. And I, I stopped being able to do that. I had to do other things other than sitting in a computer until the late nights. So I had to start prioritizing. And, and in a way that sort of helped me. Um, that actually sort of led to sorcery because um, I started to do fewer things and started to perhaps give a bit more thought about what exactly I was going to spend my time on rather than as I, when I was younger, I would just think, I'll just try and do everything. Yeah, I don't have to prioritize. I can just spend more time. <laughs> Um, yeah. because there's plenty of time yeah. that's all we have right <laughs> exactly so yeah it, it it got to the point where thinking well you know if we're going to do it it has to be now um and we had a little bit of runaway from um having done the elastin thing and i figured you know i might as well spend some of this money that we've saved over the years um just effectively burning our own runway to see how far we can get and if it doesn't work it doesn't work but you know we'll at least try our best um, and maybe try and get at least a couple of games shipped before we hit the, the half century. So we shipped one, which is a start, and hopefully we will we will do some more. Wow, that's amazing. It's kind of weird. I was looking at it September 2017, around the same time I decided to do exactly the same thing for pretty much the same reasons, but I'm doing two gigs. I'm doing the, the burning the candle at both ends and seeing how much, you know, once it gets to the middle of half century, I just probably just burst into flames and... <laughs> You'll ascend to a new level of consciousness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Or just burn out and just be like a quivering wreck in the, in the corner. No, it's it's ascension. We have to believe it's ascension, not burnout. It's <laughs> sublime into a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the singularity of, of, of game development. But it's kind of... It's, it's a similar feeling that I think a lot of the people that we've talked on this podcast kind of come from, from the university to, into game development because that's what they wanted to do. I never thought that was even possible, you know, until 
a few years ago with, uh, ironically enough, closing the gap with a game from the Chinese room, which is, so it was Dear Esther. And um, I was looking, at, I'm not saying that it, it was simple or easy or anything like that, but I was looking at it going, hey, you can do experiences, right? That's cool. And I was thinking, I can do an experience. I mean, I, I think I can. And that led me to, to, to get into this stuff. I think the draw for, especially like a lot of people like yourselves deciding to make the switch is realizing like games are so much more than just scoring system, point attack and things like that. Like you said, you started to see these experience like games. It's like we spoke on a previous episode about Gone Home mm. and that was another big one that like sparked the idea for a lot of other smaller companies like uh, indie companies to start as well and try and build their experiences but not happen to necessarily deliver this triple a blockbuster because that's not the only way to make a game like you can make these more um even better personal experiences that maybe a small fraction of people can relate to but because it's not costing you billions to make it's now becoming slightly more accessible for people to take a shot at yeah absolutely yeah, I think that's why a lot of people also join the gaming industry now is due to those smaller experiences they see and they're like, okay, maybe I can help contribute to that. You're not going to see a AAA game like Assassin's Creed and be like, yes, I can make that myself. <laughs> You're seeing the, the more just related... Just by yeah, just by just, myself. Just one person. I can do it. It will only take 50 years. Uh, so you see those smaller games and you relate to something. They're also usually built in like a different way as well. Like you'll notice that if you work with an indie company or by yourself and there's only a couple of you versus working for a structured studio, like a big AAA studio, like the work pipelines and stuff are quite different. Um, and obviously, but when I compare past projects I worked on in the indie field to the projects I'm doing now with Hangar, the design aspect and everything like that, that remains the same. The skills I've got, the processes I go through, they're largely the same. But the actual protocol of how development works and production works at a bigger company is far more distributed. Yeah, it's funny. I've got a slightly different reason or you know different trigger really because when I started wanting to get into games, um, things were already extremely simple. Obviously, I started uh, you know in the early early eighties. Um, everything didn't matter. Even the the highest level games that were being produced were, were very very simple. Um, and there was actually a window. I mean, it's it's interesting to hear you say about um, how is there's like a threshold recently of of um, people realizing that that games can be smaller. It's funny because to me that was that was the, the idea that games had to be massive was only a, a, a weird little anomaly in in the middle um it was like mm. from about 2007 2008 or so onwards things started to go crazy because i mean i obviously thought that i could build an engine that people could use to make to make games and i could do it on my own to begin with at least um and that's because when i started it in 2000 things were relatively simple we were talking about you know sort of the best thing you could get AAA wise was about sort of jedi knight one sort of quality graphics you know just probably ps2 sort of mm -hmm. level stuff yeah. um which still seemed achievable um, to us even then and it was only as time went on that uh, obviously art budgets in particular got bigger and bigger and bigger and around 2006 and 7 we thought well hang on this is actually getting well out of our, our, our sort of purview now as, as fairly amateur people and at that point what happened then is is people like uh, PopCap came along and, and those were kind of the inspiration 
for a lot of the stuff that we because we, we loved the the old sort of plants versus zombies and uh peggle and those sort of games back in the day and and those were the sort of experiences that we latched onto initially um in terms of like these are sort of arcadey but modern uh kind of experiences and those were the sort of things we were initially going for uh which is why washed up was well one of the reasons for washed up being a two-dimensional game is just because of the uh the art limitations it was easier for mary to come from her previous background of uh doing mostly 2d arts uh and she never done game art before so there's a lot of learning in terms of formats and how you figure out you know the pixel ratio for, for various art assets and things like that um it was easier for her to come across to 2d uh, and then work up from there so yeah that that was sort of our inspiration mostly and we've i mean i i love the arrestor and uh, uh love these sort of what people would sort of pejoratively call walking simulators i, I mean i don't mind because i like walking <laughs> yeah, that's one of that's literally up your alley, <laughs> yeah exactly right I, I enjoy that doing that in real life why wouldn't i like it in in places that i couldn't go normally but yeah it's those are great as well um but it's funny how you know scale kind of blew up for a while and obviously still is blown up in terms of the big AAA stuff but um there was sort of a window where everyone thought the only thing you could possibly do was was that big thing and i think either side of it there was there was there was the idea that you could you could do small things it was just people forgot for a while it's almost like there's been a sort of cam was a sort of cambrian explosion of um evolution Mm. in games in that the very very high budget games uh took over from the kind of ancestors uh, and shot off into these very successful uh, sort of megafauna uh, things, whereas there's still the kind of the the happy little mice and things still running around and, and it's existing quite well along with everything else. Uh, and yeah, I think that's absolutely, as you say, it's that, that kind of game has never really gone away. And certainly as well with, with the rise of mobile gaming, it, I would say that more people play that card game than anything else. Yeah, and we, we saw quite a lot of it in the late 2000s. Um, a lot of people that ended up using Ogre were kind of German companies who were making small strategy games or um, adventure games and that sort of thing. And this was still um, poodling along in the background there quite happily while the AAA stuff was going mad. I mean, I, I blame the normal map for the, the explosion. Um, as soon as someone invented the idea of a normal map, uh, suddenly our budgets went completely mad and uh, <laughs> you know, suddenly we couldn't build them anymore. But yeah, it was still happening. It was just... Uh, didn't look as fancy and didn't didn't push the latest consoles to their latest to their greatest possible arc um but yeah it was still it was still there and obviously i don't think it's ever really gone away it's it's kind of interesting to hear you say that especially since recently you've been also experimenting in the one of the triple a engines which is unreal engine mm-hmm. yeah that's an interesting exp- exploration because you went to back to study c plus plus at some point, didn't you? You you, you didn't have start out with a computer science degree, but you went to back to did a. Well, I mean, I I taught myself C, you know, pre C plus plus, um, back in about nineteen ninety, I think it was. That's when I that's when I started, and then I moved on to C plus plus, sort of mid nineties, something like that, and then obviously did C plus plus all the way through Ogre because I was C plus plus um, until about two thousand ten. So it was only at that point that I started. I mean, I was I was using a lot of languages anyway because I, I wasn't getting paid to do game development or or Ogre to begin with. So I was doing business development originally Cobol, and I was doing some Java, uh, some Visual Basic. Um, you know, you things. can earn so much money now with with Cobol if you're yeah. in New Jersey. <laughs> Actually, I lied. I found out that like they're looking for loads of Cobol programmers, but they don't want to pay them the actual rate. <laughs> yeah, that's typically and the you're way. Like, wait a minute. So there's very few of them. 
but you don't want to pay them. <laughs> yeah. So I spent a long time, you know, in C++ because that was the way you had to, to write things in, in that sort of time period. Um, and obviously at that point we knew about Unreal, uh, Unreal 3, but obviously you had to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to use it at that point. So that's partly why we'd we'd make our own. And yeah, and but when I obviously took a, a time out from doing game stuff uh, for about six or seven years. Um, and when I came back, the, the best way to get back into it seemed to be Unity for us because we're very small. I could write in C++, but I don't necessarily think that you should necessarily use the most obvious language. If, if you're looking that you already know, you know, if, if you're trying to start a new project, you should use whatever language and tool fits that project, not necessarily what it is that you naturally fall towards. And I did that with source tree. Actually. I, mean, I learned Objective-C just so that I could write source tree. Um, it's sort of similar to C anyway, but it's it's got a lot of square brackets kicking around that are a bit weird. So I've always believed in you know learning the, the tools that are most relevant to you at the time. So Unity was the best one for me to go for at that time, just because it was quite easy to learn, quite suited to a small-scale situation, um, very suited to two-dimensional games, which is where we wanted to start. Um, and then recently, things things have changed over the last four years in various ways. I'm actually writing a blog post about this at the moment. Um, and one of those things is we've moved more into three-dimensional stuff. So Mario's learned how to use Maya and is now in Blender. Um, our recent game was 3D. We've done a couple of prototypes that were 3D as well that, that haven't shipped. But, you know, as a team, I obviously did a lot of 3D before, but not necessarily in game design terms, more in the sort of technical engine side. Um, so I've, I'm learning a whole bunch of new things um, in terms of, you know, just design aspects, gameplay, gameplay space stuff, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, anything really that I haven't really covered just from a visual rendering point of view. And we now sort of feel that we can make some some good 3D work with the amount of resources we've got and the knowledge we've got. And, and um, I feel happier that I know enough about game development that Unreal doesn't feel quite so daunting. I would say, even though I've got a lot of background in doing trying to do game development, uh, Unreal, you know, going from zero to Unreal is quite a big step, um, particularly if you're doing it on your own, uh, if you're the only coder. So I thought, might as well, especially because we're doing 2D stuff to begin with, might as well ease yourself in slowly. Um, and I wasn't necessarily planning on switching to Unreal later, um, but a confluence of things, both our, our own position, the sort of things we're working on, and some of the features I want to start using. So I want to start using a bit of networking, and Unreal's got a bit more um, maturity in that area. And just there's a few things around Unity right now which have made it a little bit less stable of a platform. So I've been looking at Unreal thinking maybe I should give it another go because I decided four years ago that I wouldn't use it for various reasons, including that C++ is not, even though I've got 20 plus years experience on it, it's not necessarily the most productive um, when you're just a single programmer and trying to just be as efficient as possible. I found a lot of Unreal, which was uh, because I, I did Unity for quite a while, so doing uh, C Sharp was, is not a problem for a web developer. It's like literally you fall into it. But I went to Unreal because I didn't want to do coding as my side project i mean even though you are because you're solving those problems but i wanted to solve them in a different way make them more fun and the blueprinting engine so far can take you maybe 80 90 percent of the way with all of that i've been very impressed by blueprints now I, this is this is part of my blog post but um i I have a history with visual programming. Um, back in, oh, really? <laughs> back in 2000. Now, we're going back a bit now, but back in 2000, I was working on a big enterprise system, which was Java, but we used a thing called IBM's Visual Age for Java. And it was it, it pushed very, very heavily on the visual programming um, paradigm. And all of the user interface you built, everything that really supported those 
those user interfaces was all visual coding. And it's, you know, if you look at it on the surface, it looks ugly now, but on the surface, it's very similar to what Blueprints does. However, um, at the time, I was working in a team of about 12 people, uh, and this tool was quite new. It had lots of problems. It uh, didn't have particularly great ways of debugging things. The code generators were a bit wonky sometimes. It was a horrible experience. It was one of these things where we, we found it was very easy to build things, um, but it was very, very difficult to realize what the hell you would build afterwards <laughs> um, or try to understand it. And and I realize now that a lot of that was the tooling um, was just not mature enough. And uh, the way that we could express things was not mature enough. The, the trouble is that has colored my experience of visual coding for a very long time. And I would... I would stay away from visual coding um, as if it was the plague. Um, I, I avoided it for, for material systems. Um, I avoided it for, for blueprints. Um, so when I looked at Unreal last time, one of the reasons I did I chose not to use it was that I thought I would just have to use C++ for everything because um, using visual coding would just not sit with me the way that I, I would want. Now, my opinion has changed over, over the last sort of four years. I, it's been a number of things. One, we're working in a very small team, so it matters, it's, it's less difficult to keep track of what's going on. Uh, one of the problems with the visual coding in, in a big team was just loads of stuff was changing all the time. And if you couldn't unpick it uh, very easily, or and it took you twice as long to figure out what on earth this thing did, um, that was a major problem. Uh, you know, you've got 11 other people who are, who are doing things, and you've got to try and understand all of that going on. You, and you can't diff it. You can't look at the, you can't look at the logs, uh, you know, the git logs as you would do now and do code review um, because there's no way to diff it particularly easily and it was it was just a horrible nightmare but when I'm working in such a small environment uh, that doesn't really come into it it's less of an issue the tooling is vastly better um, it's just it's night and day compared to what we were used to before and I've also sort of mellowed a bit in my old age I think it's one of those things where you have very strong opinions when you're younger about what's good and what's bad about technology and I think I think I've experienced enough of it now to realize that probably everything that I write is probably bad if you look at it from a certain point of view so I shouldn't probably be as judgmental uh, about other things so. well I think any code that you write in six months you look back on it and go like, what the <laughs> yeah. hell yeah yeah precisely you know it's one of those things that like you do it enough times you realize that whatever thing you're writing now is crap you might think it's genius but in six months time you look back on it and go like ah i've learned you know yeah. it's you that's changing not your and, and this is my my obsession with simplicity is that the only way i can really insulate myself against myself is by writing things as simply as possible you know the, the dumb solution is always better than the, the clever one unless it has you know unless it absolutely has to be i also would like i mean at the moment we're really quite split between me doing programming and, and Mary doing art however i dip into the art side sometimes because sometimes i just want to try things out or i don't want to waste her time um or or sort of have to wait for her to do something if i can just just bash something out really quickly that's rubbish but at least i can test the idea she would show me sometimes you know rigs that she's made in maya which is this, this load of um visual mathematical nodes that she's built and i'm saying you know you realize that you just built something that's really just programming right it's <laughs> it doesn't feel like that to her because it's it's all visual so i when i saw that i thought well really i'm, I'm just i'm making things worse by being so opinionated about things have to be code rather than rather than visual and you know it's not just about what i like perhaps we we can come to a sort of middle ground that works for everybody. And having having tried to do that, I think Blueprints is a really good solution for that. So I'm definitely still going to have to write some C++. There's no doubt about that. Um, however, it's going to be hopefully in all the corners where it, there just needs to be something particularly tight or, or particularly complicated that needs to be C++. And almost everything else, I'm hoping, um, is going to be Blueprints. So we shall see. I've seen a massive resurgence, not resurgence, surgeons, I don't know, increase in nodes 
programming or blueprint style programming or whatever you want to call it, like substance. Mm. Yeah, Bolt, uh, which I was going like, wait a minute, that's blueprints. And then I thought, well, okay, yeah. So there's also like substance designer. There is, as you say, Maya's already got it. Houdini. I mean, you can do a lot of visual stuff, but you're generally just working around your nodes. And Blender, which is now has got a massive amount of node programming in it even though I'm always doing this at the yeah, same absolutely. Note, but... I mean, back, back in the day, using Unreal, it was always the, the big thing. Anyone who'd used Unreal before, they would say to you, you've got, to, you've got to do things in the Unreal way. You have to do them in the way that the engine designed them to do. If you don't, you try and do it a different way. You're going to be working uphill the whole time. And that's, that, has, that has never really stopped being true. And I'd say one of the biggest new skills in using Unreal uh, nowadays is understanding where that dividing line of C++ and Blueprint lies and accurately placing that line and going, I understand at what point the C++ needs to come out into the sort of content side and be exposed to all the depredations and and uh, improvements that your team might make to it. The, imp- the impression I get is that it will depend very much on the size of your team. Um, I think I feel a lot more comfortable because we are so small um, that we can do more things in blueprints. I think if there was a lot of, you know, a lot of code to be written or a lot of functionality to be added, I, I'd be much more leaning towards C++ just because it's just easier to merge uh, changes and easier to review everybody's, um, everybody's work. Uh, but the way we are right now, I, I think it, it works quite well to try and minimize the amount of C++ that I, I have to write, despite the fact that I'm notionally uh, a coder, first and foremost. It's a joy sometimes to, do, to be able to just throw a few nodes together and it does it. I don't worry about compiling or about anything and it just does it. But there's times that you go like, why is this node not complete? I'm not looking at you listing of number of levels. Like if you want to load a level, why isn't there just like a drop down? Anyway, that's not a bugbear that I have a lot. I have an I have a question for you, Steve. So you have a very extensive background in open source creation of software. I wonder what you think about whether there is some dividing line between the sort of open source collaboration of creating software and open source collaboration of creative efforts. And what what is the nature of that dividing line? Is it a purely a kind of organizational production thing? Or is it the fact that creative stuff say the games that you make are they somehow personal to you in a way that it's not practical or it's not it's not about it's not in their nature to be shared in that way and opened up to the open source kind of thing it's funny someone i can't remember who it was someone uh posted on twitter just recently just last week i think it was and was kind of mooting the idea of having a, a collaborative sort of open source approach to uh, a game development you know projects and would people be open to this sort of thing and there were a lot of good comments on that from both people who have been in open source and in game development my personal view of it is that open source works because everybody's contributing to it is somehow getting something out of it as well uh, and they're getting something out of it quite directly you know they're, they're almost certainly using it they wouldn't have any other reason to be participating if they if they weren't um, so there's a very easy line between, oh, here's something that I put in, and I might be putting in way more work than I ever use, um, but I am still getting something out of it. And uh, I know it's it sort of sounds a bit selfish, but I think the rational self-interest is is necessary as a, as a, as a motivator. Um, and I think the trouble with creative projects is that it's a very hit and miss thing. You know, whether the project finishes at all um, is one thing, whether it's successful when it does finish. Um, and then it's a case of within that, uh, who is 
the creative director of that you know who is who is um making the decisions and it will be some you can you can sort of do the whole woolly let's have a let's have a collaborative project idea up to a certain point but eventually someone's going to have to you know decide something there's going to be some sort of conflicting idea someone's going to say no we can't have all five of these ideas there has to be two of them the other three have to yes. die I, I mean i wonder if it's if the analogy between like a bridge and a painting is fair I think it may be a bit yeah. reductive, but you could say. I think that's a. I think that's a good one. That you you can't you can't sort of disagree about the fact that steel has a certain engineering capability, and but whether you could argue endlessly about what colour a shirt in a painting. Could yeah, be. that's 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 a good analogy. What I would say is, um, that at least with the bridge, there is actually a defined set of mathematical bases for it. You know, they 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 have that. That no one can argue with, and everyone who helps build the bridge gets to use it, don't they? Like in your, as you said yeah, before, yeah, exactly. Everyone who helps build the bridge gets to use it, whereas only one person can have the painting in their front room. Yes, yes, exactly. But we share it <laughs> on, on weekends. You know. Sorry, I interrupted you, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, notionally, if it's like a, a library or something like that, then there is uh, perhaps a more engineering focus on it, so that does make things easier for, for sure. However, there is still a kind of direction aspect of that as well. And um, normally what happens with that sort of setup is that someone will have started it because it's normally someone has had a go at it and they've put it online and then it's grown from there. So there's there tends to be a kind of, most of the time at least, a, a natural um, seeding of control of opinion to one person or a couple of people um the sort of benevolent dictator kind of thing so someone is at least there hopefully they're, they're not horrible you know hopefully they're nice people but uh, notionally they're there to at least break deadlocks and, and make sure that something happens if there's a lot of conflicting ideas and, and potential ways that you could go and not everyone may agree but at least when it's a utilitarian kind of thing even if they don't necessarily agree with all of the things uh, all of the direction that's been decided on someone is still going to benefit from it you, you know even if you don't like the way that they've decided to take this particular open source project probably it's still going to work for you it's not going to completely rule it out as a thing that's going to be acceptable to you whereas with the, with the creative project it's very much more emotional so you know if, if you lose control of that and it was something that you really really cared about um that's devastating you know it's, it's going to be this is a problem no matter whether it's a commercial project or an open source project that that happens in commercial projects obviously but at least at that point you're getting paid for it so that's sort of a salve for your for your wounds um to a degree at least so um i'm a little bit skeptical about the concept of, of collaborative creative projects like they can they can work sometimes but it's very much hit and miss thing i've been involved in a number of little commercial projects mostly actually before open sources back in the 90s when i get together with a few friends and we try and make something together and they almost never worked um we get to a certain point and it would fall apart for whatever reason disagreements of things or different directions someone would go off in a completely different direction and not tell anybody uh, you know it's just the way it would go and you can't tell them off because they're doing it in their own time so it's you know they can do whatever they want you said you wanted to release some games before you before your the half century mark what have you released so far? What are you about to release? <laughs> so so we've released um, a game called Washed Up, which is our first uh -huh. commercial release. It's basically, if you imagine Tetris, but you were using pentominoes instead of tetronomies. Um, and they were coming in from... Pentom... What? The they're they're pentominoes. It means they're made out of five squares... So each block each block is a sort of an, an arrangement of five smaller squares. Okay, okay. Um, so there's a few more... There's a few more 
arrangements obviously you can get out of that compared to the t- t- uh, Tetris blocks. We actually were quite careful never to mention the word Tetris on our on our Steam page, of course. <laughs> just in case. Of course. Just in, <laughs> just in case. Um, but that's you know it's a similar idea and that you're trying to put blocks together, um, and they're coming in from the from the left and right hand sides rather than just from the top, uh, and they sort of settle on the beach, um, and it's up to you how you pick them up and what order you put them in in the center, and you're trying to make squares rather than rather than lines, um, and it's it's about trying to tidy up the beaches. Um, before they get horribly polluted by all this stuff that humans have, have dumped in the ocean, um, and you're basically you're, oh, nice. you're sort of notionally controlling these little crabs, which which come out of the ocean and pick up the blocks and and move them around to where they where they need to go. Yeah, so that was our first game. It's that was kind of a design from from Mary mostly um, because we we started it in one of the global game jams. I forget which year it was. Six twenty sixteen, I think. Um, maybe twenty seventeen. And um, we kind of left it alone for a while. It was a very rudimentary version at that point. And then we just came back to it um, 2017 and decided to pick it up and make it into a, into a full game. And we're quite pleased with it. You know, it's our first game, our first baby that we've put out into the world. It, it hasn't done big numbers at all, but the people who have intersected with it and have played it um, have all given us very nice feedback. You know, we've had a lot of people saying we've really enjoyed playing it. And uh, that is kind of what makes makes our day at the moment. We, we never really expected to be commercially successful, you know, our first game or first three games, maybe we'll have to see. But, you know, it was just nice to have at least some people appreciating it and uh, having fun with it. And that's on, on Steam. So we're, we're going to put the link in, in, in the show notes so that you can be amazingly rich because so many people <laughs> listen to the Thank you. It's very, it's very good of you. Yeah, so that we released that late 2018. Um, and then since then, we, we've done a couple of prototypes, which didn't really pan out, unfortunately. But then we did one prototype, which we really enjoyed making. It was basically a Peggle kind of thing, a kind of Peggle game, which was rendered in 3D and had lots of HDR effects and basically a synthwave aesthetic, because that's kind of my jam oh, at the cool. moment. <laughs> really enjoyed doing that. And then we discovered there's, there's a patent, which, which covers pretty much anything even remotely related to Peggle. Um, even some of the really wild things that we'd, we'd intended to do. Um, so we, we thought, okay, we're doing something that's vastly different to Peggle. We'll, we'll build basically Peggle first so that we understand why Peggle is good. Um, and then we'll add all the other stuff we, we think is going to be good on top of that. And as it turned out, we discovered it was actually Christmas that we discovered it. It was a great, great discovery at Christmas um, that I happened to look and, and find that there's a pattern that covers that. So we, we thought about it and we thought, well, to take it where we want to take it, it's going to take another year plus, you know, to really polish it where we want to go. Um, we don't want to throw it away, though. So I spent a couple of months just polishing it a little bit more, getting it to the point where it was actually a game, even if it was just a prototype. And cause it's, got, it's got its own level editors. You can make your own levels and everything. So it, w- it was nice to be able to give it to people um so they could just experiment with it make their own levels and things and then we released it to everybody's on our mailing list um sort of six weeks ago roughly just for free just so that someone gets to play it and we still play it it's still good fun i'm actually going to do uh, an update to it um it probably in the next couple of weeks just add some more levels that we've been working on um but we're really we're really proud of it it's just a shame that we can never actually release it or at least until i think i think the pattern expires in 2028 so Maybe we'll pick so it up. just a few more years. <laughs> yeah. No one can patent uh, navel-gazing walking simulators, so we're fine. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, th- this is the thing about uh, walking simulators, I think, so you should try out. It's like Death Stranding. That's an actual walking simulator rather than a rather than a first-person explorer, I-, I guess, because you literally are falling over and having to, you know, balance and stuff. Yeah. So you're, you're <laughs> not meant to be falling over. Playing it wrong. Look, I'm going to play the game however I want to play yeah. the game. Man. It's his game. You can play it. <laughs> Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the on the show. 
if uh, people want to seek you out, where, where should they go? So I guess Twitter is the most active place I am. So it's just at Steve Streeting. I, I like people with, with just their names as, as Twitter handles. You see, I completely approve. Yeah, it's very simple. It's just not very fashionable. But there we go. Yeah. I've never been particularly fashionable, so that's fine. It's on brand. <laughs> and uh, they can go to Steam and uh, look at Washed Up. They can indeed, yeah. Uh, and um, keep an eye, keep an eye on our website. We will be publishing more games in the future, but uh, it'll be a little while. Uh, SteveStreeting.com. Uh, the our, our company website is OldDoorways.com. Oh right, OldDoorways. Um, yeah. But yeah, my my personal one is SteveStreeting.com, which is perhaps a bit more active in terms of blogging. And we should be looking for your blog. Hopefully, by the time this episode is out. The blog post about the Unreal en- your experiences with Unreal Engine will be out. But that's a, yeah, I've, I've actually had to split it. I've, I've written five and a half thousand words and it was getting too long. So <laughs> I've, I've split it into part one, which is probably the most controversial bit. <laughs> and then part two, we'll do, the, we'll, we'll do all the nice bits. <laughs> so so you've done the Huffington Post kind of thing to like put like the, the shock, you know, 10 things that will shock you about Unreal Engine. I mean, Engine. I, I, think it's, I think it's actually... You know, quite nice. Uh, in, in terms, of, I don't think it's trying to be horrible to anybody, but uh, I know that there's going to be pe- people who just don't agree with you know my opinions of C plus plus. Even though I've got, I've I've certainly earned my chops in the C plus plus department, but uh, I'm sure people will still help hate me for saying that I'm not really that keen on it anymore. But uh, we'll see. <laughs> but but see, also remember that it might be an age thing. Like you got you get old, you get experienced at it, and then the young people have strong opinions I think about if you used it. a certain... Yeah, if you use a programming language for a certain amount of time, you should get like a sword that gets longer and longer and sharper and sharper the more you know. And you can actually just go and fight them. And then that's... That... Yeah. So the, so the people with yeah. the pen knives coming at you, you're like, ah! And on that note, uh, I want to thank you, Steve. Uh, I want to thank you, Valentina. Where can they uh, find you on the internets? So yeah, my Twitter handle is Valentina C H R Y S. Uh, that's probably the best like location to find me. Rob. Yeah, you can find me at R M McLaughlin. Good luck spelling McLaughlin. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan. Uh, yeah, you can always reach out to me on uh, Twitter at Omni slash ninety two. And if you can't, you can always tweet us at Level Design FM or email us at show at leveldesign dot fm. Thank you very much, and thank you to our guests and our hosts. Goodbye. See ya. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. The Level Design Podcast has been a Command Studio production. Our editor is Matthew Lever, and this episode has been produced by Brian Rose.